Don't turn around, whoa The rankers are in town, whoa <laughs> How was that one? That was... Pretty good? That was okay. excellent. Tolerable? Often I know what you're going to do before you do it, but you started today. Secrets, man. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, everybody. What a random song to choose. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where that came Feeling from. Feeling a little 80s today? A little bit, a little bit. Just a touch? A touch, just a sketch. Uh, <laughs> welcome, everybody, to episode 36 of Ranking the Beatles. I'm your host, Jonathan. Over here to my left, as always. Julia. <laughs> uh, it's Julia. Uh, hi, everybody. Hope you're having a wonderful week. How's your week going, my dear? It's very cold. It is cold. It's very cold. Um, hopefully uh, everybody out there is uh, is warm and safe and has power and water uh, yeah, and is doing great. okay. Yes. Fingers crossed. It's been a, a strange week, so yeah. Hopefully um, this week finds you all well as well, I guess, <laughs> as they say. <laughs> Words. Words. <laughs> I'm a good word man. <laughs> so... Let's uh, let's get into it. I think I'm Wait, excited. I never get to ask how you are. How are oh, you? I'm okay. Okay. I'm okay. You're okay. Excited watching our little baby podcast grow and I know. get more listeners every week, and it's mm-hmm. you know, it's a lot of fun. It's it's keeping me uh, sane, even though I can you know, it's all Beatles all the time, but all keeping me sane. The time. The I'm still day, not tired of it though. We were we were um break like doing our breakfast last weekend and you were like hey what do you want to listen to while we make breakfast and i was like not the fucking beatles (laughs) (laughs) this is true but then also last the other weekend i played three walrus shows yes and at the end of the third one while driving home turned on the radio and they were playing uh silly love songs and i was like yep i'm in and then they followed it up with like a twofer off of abbey road and I was just like, yep, I'm listening. That's insane. It's Yeah, after playing three 90-plus minute porch concerts of all Beatles music and uh, preparing for three podcasts and editing a podcast. I don't know how you do it. It's, uh, I don't know, man. I don't, I, don't, I don't know how I do it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm good. Thank you for asking. I appreciate it. Good. So, like I was saying, let's get into it. I'm excited. Today is our first guest. Uh, who's ever been in the story of the Beatles? This is our first like person who's had like a toe in the circle. Ooh, yeah. Uh, our guest this week is a two-time Emmy Award-winning Toronto-based film and television director and producer. Uh, he started off doing congressional civil rights lobbying in Washington D.C. and voter registration work in Mississippi in the summer of 1965. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1968, 69, he assisted with the birth of a new film format as second unit director and production manager of the first IMAX film produced for Osaka 1970 World's Fair. Cool. Pretty amazing. I've seen IMAX films. Yeah, we've, we have an IMAX theater. We have been. Yes. Um, he made a career out of directing and producing dramas, TV series, and documentaries, including the Sundance favorites Prom Night in Mississippi and The Last White Night. 
In 2011, he founded the nonprofit organization Moving Beyond Prejudice, which works with police forces, students, youths at risk, uh, and community and faith. Uh, in 2011, uh, December 2011, uh, he was invited to the White House to screen his documentary, Prom Night in Mississippi, and hold a Moving Beyond Prejudice discussion with the audience. Uh, while there, he was honored as a community leader at a reception with then-President Obama and First Lady Michelle. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Pretty amazing. Love them. But what's his Beatles connection, you may ask? Uh, in 1968, he traveled to the ashram of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi to learn meditation and found himself studying alongside John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Uh, the photographs he took during his stay, candid photos of the Beatles playing guitar, writing, relaxing, totally unguarded and open, are among some of the most beloved and well-regarded photos of the band. Uh, his newest documentary out this past September is called Meeting the Beatles in India, and it's available online right now, as is his gorgeous photo book, The Beatles in India. So, let's get into this. I'm excited. Uh, please welcome to the show, Paul Saltzman. Paul, how are you, my friend? I am very well. A little cold up here in Canada, but I gather it's a little cold down there in New Orleans. Yeah, it's, it's uh, surprisingly chilly here, but that seems to be the case everywhere right now. But um, yeah, well, it's good to see you. Thank you for joining us on the show. How is uh, how has the last year treated you, 2020 and all the weirdness that that's presented us? Well, thank you for having me on. My pleasure. Um, you know, it's a strange year. Um I'm fortunate because I've always worked out of home, at least for 30 years. So mm -hmm. it's not being home is not a hardship for me. Um, you know, it's weird, though. I've, I haven't seen most of my friends for months and months and months. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I don't I don't go out of the house without some nervousness. I I wear masks. I wash my hands whenever it seems appropriate. It's a it's a strange time, but touch wood, I'm I'm okay, and my family's okay, and you know I feel very badly for all the people who are suffering, let alone dying. I mean, it's a very tragic, very tragic time. So I Absolutely. I feel sure. that I feel sad for all of that. Yeah, and I think that's a very that's a very rational human reaction, you know. And a lot of I feel like a lot of times you just get people who are are frustrated because their own, you know freedoms or the normal day-to-day -day activity has changed but uh, i think it's important to remember you know there is a, a, a huge downside to all this um, yeah yeah so. and it and it is weird like i know a lot of people like we've started having our like covid dreams of or like our nightmares of walking into a store and forgetting your mask you know like <laughs> like it's like really infecting our psyche yeah and uh, hopefully I never do that in real life. I feel like I'm pretty <laughs> conscious of wearing a mask um, and do it, you know, make sure I have one before I leave the house. I even got myself a little like, uh, like, you know, the little chains they make for glasses so you can wear them around your neck. I got one of those for my mask. Yep. So it's just like right there. <laughs> nice. Yep. Whatever no, you can do to like make it easier and like stick it in your brain. Right. <laughs> That's a very useful invention, those things that hold your glasses around your neck. Yeah, For sure. Who'd, who'd have thought they'd be compatible to uh, pandemic fashion? <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to go ahead and jump in while we've got you. Um, you know, the, I guess kind of the first thing I want to ask you is, you know, aside from your history, which we'll get to with, with the band, uh, what's your first impression of the Beatles? What was your first memory or the first time you heard the Beatles, the first time they came on your radar? First time was I did see the Ed Sullivan show. Mm -hmm. um, then we started buying their records, me and my friends, and then we started 
dancing to their music at our parties. Now, you know, we didn't, we weren't a party group, but we had parties and we danced to their music. That was, that, and you know, the joy of their music was infectious as it still is. So that was my introduction to them. How old were you when they first came to America in 64? 64, Sullivan. Um, I was uh, 63, 21. Okay. And when you first heard them, was, you know, was there ever a point, you know, as you started buying the records? And I think it's really neat that you have this kind of uh, great trajectory in real time of like the music coming out and you being able to become a fan at a little bit older age, not so much like the teeny bopper age. Um, was there a moment where it really sunk into you and made you go like, this is really great. Like this is something that is going to be around for a long time or something that's going to affect you for a long time. Was there ever that moment or like that song or that record that really grabbed you? Well, in, in one sense, yes and no, I'm not the kind of person who says, Oh, this is going to be with me for a long time. I'm not the kind of person who says, Oh, this is going to change the world. I'm just, I'm the kind of person who enjoys it in the moment and I'm going with the joy of it in the moment. So, you know, mm -hmm. from the very beginning, I loved their music and I liked them as much as I knew them from a distance. So, you know, to me, it was about the joy and the pleasure of that. Yeah. Did you ever get to see them live at any point? Yeah, I saw them live in Toronto in 1964. And how was it? Do you have any memories of that show? Oh, it was, it was, it was completely, it was completely um, uh, thrilling. It was thrilling. I mean, you know, the, it was 18,000 people in a hockey arena. Um, so I could barely hear the words. Everyone was screaming so loud. You know, I could hear every second word or third word, really. But it was just electric. Mm -hmm. And when we came out on the street, when we came out on the street afterwards, there was dead silence. 18,000 people were coming out of an arena. And it's like dead calm, dead silence, <laughs> dead quiet. There was no traffic because they had shut off the street. Uh-huh. So it was a very beautiful experience. What a transition to come out of that, like, you know, the sound of essentially like a jet engine to your eardrum into absolute silence. That's got to be kind of jarring, I can imagine. Um, how did you end up at the ashram with, with the, the Beatles? Yeah, how does that, how does your journey go from Toronto to Rishikesh? Well, I, I, um, I felt I needed to change who I was. I was now 23 years old and I was working at the National Film Board of Canada in Montreal. I thought my life was really good. I was, uh, you know, I'd been a civil rights worker in Mississippi. I had a high degree of compassion for others. Um, I'd had my own public affairs TV show. I was co-host of that on television and I was starting to work in film. I thought my, and I dated and I thought my life was going well. And I woke up one morning and my little rented room across from the tracks, literally. And I had the shocking thought that there were parts of myself I didn't like. And I'd never had that thought before. And I thought everything was going okay. I wasn't a very self-reflective person, but obviously I, I heard that. Mm -hmm. And I sat up on the edge of my bed and I put my feet over the edge of the bed and I said out loud without thinking, which is very important. It came from the heart. I said, what do I do about this? What I was feeling. Yeah. And I heard my I heard my soul talk to me for the first time. I didn't even believe in a soul. I'd been brought up to believe, you know, my parents were atheists. There's no soul. There's no spirit. There's no God. Uh, 
But in that moment of silence, after I said, what do I do about this? I heard this deep inner voice that was truly all loving, which is an incredible feeling and all wise and all caring. I mean, nothing's better than that. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and, it, and it said these words. It said, well, Paul, if you really want to look at yourself more carefully, you might want to get away from the environment you grew up in. And I said out loud without thinking, it was this strange conversation. I said out loud, where do I go? And that soul, that inner deep voice of calm and reassurance said India. And that was the end of the conversation. I had no experience of India, no interest, mysticism, meditation. I didn't know anything about that stuff. But I was so moved that I got, uh, I went up to a director who was going to be directing a documentary in, in Bombay. And I said, I'd like to work on your film. And he said, I'm sorry, I'm not taking anyone from here. I'm picking up a director of photography in London, and I'm hiring a local sound man in Bombay. They were all men at those times, no sound women. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, I, and I didn't know what to say, because he was basically saying no. And I was quiet. And in the quiet, and you know, quiet is a gift, in the quiet, he said to me, have you ever done sound? And no shit, without a hesitation, <laughs> I said, absolutely. <laughs> and, and he said, he said, well, if you get yourself to Bombay, I'll pay you the same as I was going to pay the Indian sound recordist. And I said, how much is that? And he said, $500. And I said, great deal. We shook hands. I went right to the telephone. <laughs> I, called, <laughs> I called the airlines and I said, how much, of it, how much is the ticket to Bombay? And it turned out a three-month excursion return ticket was 550 So I had enough to get there. Perfect. And then I phoned, I phoned someone I knew who was like the best sound engineer in Toronto. And I said, can you teach me sound? He said, sure, come on over. <laughs> so that's how I got to India. Um, my girlfriend and I both cried. We didn't want to part. We both cried a lot. Um, she said, if you go to India, I'll make myself stop loving you. I didn't hear that. I didn't hear that. Um, and... Um, I flew off to India and I worked on the film for six weeks and I got to New Delhi and I got my first letter from her, which I excitedly opened. And the first line was, dear Paul, I've moved in with Henry. Oh. And yeah, I was devastated. Did you know Worst this? Did you know the Henry? Oh, vaguely. Yeah. Vaguely. Ugh. So I was, I was devastated. I was shattered. Worst heartbreak before or since in my life. Mm -hmm. And somebody so. Somebody said, why don't you try meditation for the heartbreak? I said, I'll try anything. That led to going to the ashram. I heard the Maharishi speak in New Delhi. And I only remember that night. You know, he said, why don't you try meditation for the heartbreak? I said, I'll try anything. He said, I'm going to see the Maharishi speak tonight at New Delhi University. Do you want to come? I said, great. Uh, we went. And the only thing I remember, but literally it was what I needed to hear. He said, meditation takes you beneath and below your daily worries and concerns to a place of inner rejuvenation from which you come back renewed and refreshed. I thought that's what I need. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't make arrangements and, and it was fortuitous. If I'd made arrangements, they would have said, well, you can't go to the ashram. It's closed. We'll teach you in here in New Delhi, come to the office. But I didn't. I just took a train and I found my way to the ashram by kind of just asking people. And I got to the gate and I said, I've come to learn meditation. And the young man who spoke to me said, said, I'm sorry, the ashram's closed because the Beatles and their wives are here. And I so that was not good news. 
I said, you have to teach me. He said, I'll ask the Maharishi. I won't be able to come back for two or three hours. I'll send you a cup of chai, which he did. And I sat outside the front gate and I waited. And he said, he came back in two or three hours and he said, I'm sorry, the Maharishi says, not at the present time or every word. And I said, can I wait? And he was a little taken aback and he said, oh, okay. And he pointed out a tent across the path uh, at the front gate under the trees. He pointed out a tent that wasn't being used. And he said, you're welcome to sleep there and we'll send you our simple vegetarian meals. So this, this man, his name was Raghavendra, was my angel. He was my angel. Mm-hmm. And uh, eight days later, days later, the Maharishi grew. I couldn't wait for eight days and I got sent meals and oh. I waited and I suffered because the heartbreak was kind of devastating. Yeah. And then I got let in and Raghavendra taught me meditation that took... In my case, and uh, it took five minutes. And he said, you're now welcome to spend your days in the ashram and take your meals with us, but you'll still have to sleep in the tent. There's no extra beds. <laughs> I said, great. I did one 30-minute meditation, and it was an absolute miracle. I came out of the meditation. The agony was gone, mm-hmm. and what replaced it was bliss. And George Harrison later told me when we were sitting alone, he said, I get higher meditating than I ever did on on drugs and i knew what he meant i'd done drugs in the 60s and i knew what he meant because the the amazing bliss i felt from a heartbreak to bliss in 30 minutes that's incredible because i i've always heard uh you know stories about how it can take you know and and it's different for everybody but you know that initial first attempt at meditation can be super frustrating um, and I had this the first time, you know, Julia works at a, at a yoga studio. And the first time I went there for uh, what's uh, for a restorative yoga class, um, trying to turn my brain off and, you know, not concentrate on the things I had to do or the things that I'd been thinking about uh, was just such a challenge <laughs> for me to do. So that's that's wonderful that it came to you so fast. Yeah, well, it was also the vulnerability I was experiencing, right? Yeah. yeah. I was I was desperate. Yeah. You were completely open to that and just, like, gave yourself to it. So, yeah, that's amazing. What an incredible story of just, like, everything falling into place. Like, you hearing what you needed to hear, you being in the right place at the right time. I mean, just, like, bam, 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 bam. So, so, you, so you get in there finally and... What's it like as you meet your your fellow students, <laughs> the very famous students that are there? Well, I came I came out of the meditation room after that meditation. I was in a state of bliss. I was walking through the ashram, which is pretty small. I mean, I don't I don't remember fifteen acres, you know, sort of a quarter of a mile by quarter of a mile or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and I wasn't even thinking of beetles; they weren't in my mind at all. I was just so relieved not to be in agony. Mm-hmm. And I looked over at one point as I'm walking along a path and I see John sitting at a table out by the cliff overlooking the Ganges and he's about 150 feet away. And I I can tell that Paul's sitting with his back to me. And I just curved over. It wasn't even a thought. It wasn't a thought. Oh, Beatles, I'll go see them. It wasn't a thought. I just started curving over in this altered state of bliss. And I got to the table and there were the four of them and their wives and partners and Mal Evans, Donovan, Mia Farrow, Mike Love. There were 12 of them. And um, 
And I just stood at the end of the table where I had arrived because they were talking. I didn't want to interrupt. And after a few minutes, they became aware that somebody was standing there and they stopped talking. And John looked it up, up at me and I just said, very calm in this altered state. Thank God for that. I said, may I join you? He said, sure, mate, pull up a chair. <laughs> Paul turned to me and said, come and sit here and pulled a chair uh, over at the end of the table. And I sat down with him. And then, then three magical things happened. Magical being defined as that which is real, but we do not yet as yet understand, right? Mm -hmm. It's like a card trick. It's a card trick. If you make the ace of spades disappear, if you know how it works, it's not magic. If you don't know how it works, it's magic, right? Right. <laughs> so, as soon as I as soon as I sat down, as soon as my bum hit the seat, to my surprise, I hear a scream in my head, a scream, eek, it's the Beatles. Now, <laughs> I had never said that in my life. I had never screamed it at the at the concert, right? Right. <laughs> But, but it was but it was clearly the fan but before I had a chance to think and this is really important we our brains are a wonderful thing but they're not a great guidance system as soon as that thought finishes eek it's the Beatles I hear my soul talk to me for the second time in my life inside it's a deep calm all loving voice all calming and it says hey Paul they're just ordinary people like you everyone farts and is afraid in the night. That's what it said. <laughs> Before I had a chance to think, John turns to me and he says, in his ride-digging wit, and it's not a compliment, he says, so you're American then? And he's, he's, uh, he's teasing me. He's trying to get my whatever, goat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he turns Sorry. to me and says, you're American then, and he's not being complimentary. He's teasing me like the Brits are superior to the Yankees, right? <laughs> and... He's pretending to be colonial. And I say, no Canadian. And he turns back to the rest of the group and he says, ah, he's from one of the colonies. And we're all laughing. And he turns back to me and he says, so you're still worshiping her highness then? And I said, no, not personally. And then Ringo and Paul start teasing me about having the queen on our money. <laughs> and I said, yeah. And I said, well, we may have the queen on our money, but hey, she lives with you guys. And so we're all laughing. <laughs> We're all laughing. And then they just took me into their group. That was it. They, you know, and I, what I would say is the fan came out in my head and went away. The soul spoke to me about, hey, they're just ordinary people like yeah. you. And then we start playing with each other. We start playing and we're laughing. And then they took me into their group and I hung out with them for a week. I could have had them longer. I came back to see if my girlfriend and I could get back together. And going back to her and saying, I just spent a week with the Beatles, didn't pull any, any strings for you? Well, in fact, we never talked. Ah. Um, she didn't know how to deal with her pain. She wasn't living with Henry anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know how to deal with my pain. It was like we never did really speak. It was it was too bad, but it was what it was. Yeah. Yeah. What a, you know, what a, what a great human moment to have with, with four guys who seem so you know, otherworldly sometimes. That's so fantastic that they were just so warm and, and open and inviting like that. How great. How oh, cool. yeah. They were they were completely down to earth. There was no star stuff in them. Yeah. None. In the week, I, I spent a week with them. There was no attitude. There was no star. That's you know? so cool. That's so yeah. cool. End of part one. Intermission.
Hey friends, Jonathan here. Uh, this isn't really an ad so much because no one's paying me for this, and I'd be really paying myself, I guess. Uh, but we have been asked, so I wanted to let you know. Uh, the Beatles cover band that I play with is called The Walrus, and if you're in the New Orleans area, we have a show coming up Friday, February 26th, at the Broadside in New Orleans, which is uh, actually outside of the Broad Theater. Uh, we're performing with the Electric Yacht Quartet, an evening of Beatles music with string accompaniment. It will be gorgeous. Tickets are available at Broadside NOLA, and you can check out all the walrus-related goodness on Facebook at Walrus NOLA. Hope to see you there. End of intermission, part two. Well, I know we we have you for a limited time, so I want to go ahead and hop into our song of the week, uh, if that's okay with you, if you're ready for that. Yes, I am absolutely ready. Coming in at number 181 this week is the continuing story of Bungalow Bill. Hey, Bungalow Bill, what did you kill? Bungalow Bill. All right, so one of a number of songs written during their stay in Rishikesh, the continuing story of Bungalow Bill is a mostly true account of the story of one Rick Cook, who, along with his mother Nancy, a longtime follower of the Maharishi, and actually had worked as a publicist for him at some point, uh, arrived at the ashram during the Beatles' stay and took up residency in one of the nicer accommodations near the Maharishis. Rick was 27 and apparently the embodiment of the all-American guy, athletically built uh, with a crew cut. He described all the Beatles as having been fairly friendly to him, with the exception of John, whom he recalls there wasn't a whole bunch that we got to connect on. Uh, now, Nancy, uh, who wrote a book called Beyond Gurus, A Woman of Many Worlds, says a tour guide explained that killing tigers was a traditional act and a necessary one since, uh, since local villagers had been concerned about tigers killing elephants at that time. So one morning, Nancy and Rick and a crew headed out on elephants and at some point came upon a tiger who proceeded to attack them and their elephants. Rick shot and killed the tiger, took some photos with it, and then the tiger was loaded onto a truck and carried away. So upon returning to the ashram, Rick had begun to feel guilt for having killed the tiger. Uh, he went to speak to the Maharishi about it, who was in conversation with two students, uh, Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Uh, Rick proceeded to tell the Maharishi what he had done, that he felt bad about it, he said he didn't think he could ever kill an animal again. And the Maharishi asked him, you had the desire and now you no longer have the desire. Uh, and John followed up with his own question, uh, don't you call that slightly life destructive? Uh, Rick's mother Nancy informed him it was either the tiger or us. Apparently, this was Rick's last hunting experience. He went on to be a freelance photographer for the National Geographic. So the Beatles demo John's song at George's Easter Bungalow upon return to England on October 8th in the midst of a 16-hour overnight session following work on John's I'm So Tired captured a master track in three takes. 
Uh, this was followed by a number of overdubs, including engineer Ken Scott adding mandolin and trumpet sounds courtesy of a Mellotron, and a large group gang vocal, including Mal Evans, Ringo's wife Maureen, and any other free voice they could rummage in the wee hours at Abbey Road. Also on hand was Yoko Ono, who added the first and only lead vocal on a Beatles track, Not By a Beatle. Uh, and then the Spanish guitar intro on the track is actually a stock Mellotron sample that was later added to the track uh, during the sequencing session for the album. The song was, of course, released November 22nd on the White Album and never performed live by the band who had stopped touring two years prior. So why do I have Bungalow Bill at number 181? I think this is a really interesting song. I think you know It's documented that John and George and Ringo, in particular, uh, had problems with Paul's Obla Di Obla Da. And John, in particular, took a lot of opportunities to ridicule Paul's ability to invent stories and characters in songs. And, you know, John, especially in 1968, is moving into this kind of real life immediacy, um, authenticity kind of motif in his songwriting. So for him to write a song that's so storyteller is really intriguing to me. Uh, it makes me think that the actual incident must have really gotten to him for him to take the time to write a song that's essentially a dig at the guy and his mother, who he probably viewed as aristocratic, uh, establishment, rich Americans. Uh, and it's one thing to write the song to kind of take the piss, and another completely to record it and then put it on a Beatles album that he knows is going to sell millions of copies. Um, it's not a compositional or melodic marvel. It's not a lyrical high watermark. And, you know, at this point, John's really been turning out great material. So I feel like he's really got to want to have this song on the album. Uh, but I think it's actually a really fun track. It really visualizes like a Saturday morning cartoon would. Uh, you know, the story is really told in, in a childlike way that it almost seems like Ringo could have sang the lead on this. I love the group vocal. It's got a great energy and vibe. I love the little voices John does on the All the Children Sing lines. Um, and really, I love Yoko's vocal on it. It's shaky and pitchy, but I think that enhances the whole cartoonish element of the song. And I've got to think if you're listening to the Beatles in real time, and maybe you can attest to this, you know, in real time in in 68, when this album is new, this song is a whole new world uh, from a band that's been giving you new worlds regularly for four years. And now there's a new voice in the mix that you've never heard before. Um, that's got to be kind of like a real mind blower to me. So that's my thoughts on it. So, Paul, what do you think about about this song? Well, I think you're very eloquent and well-informed, and I'm not. <laughs> what, I, what I think about it was, when I first heard it, I loved it. Um, I wasn't there when that happened. I was already gone. Mm -hmm. So to me, it was, to me, it was a new story. Right. And, and, and I thought it was a fantastic song. And to this day, if I listen to it, it's like filled with joy and playfulness. And so I think it's a marvelous song. Yeah. And, of course, I, I met... Ricky Cook. I went to Molokai, Hawaii, where he lived, and I filmed him for my film Meeting the Beatles in India, which came out in September. Mm -hmm. um, and people can find it either on my website um, or, you know, other ways. But um, I found Ricky and I filmed with him and it was a total delight. And he told the story and he told the story from his end of it. You know, his mother said it was him or us. And he said, no, he said the tiger was just trying to get away from us. Huh. And, um, you know, so you get a different view. The story in the, in my film is his story and it's different. Yeah. Uh, and, um, he's a lovely man. Mm -hmm. He's been meditating. He med was meditating from before going to India. And he says, you know, I had two passions, meditation and hunting. That's what he had. You know, he wow. grew up on 
He grew up on Molokai, and for whatever reason, hunting was part of his uh, DNA. Mm -hmm. But when he, after the after that event, he stopped hunting, like you said. And so talking to him was just beautiful. I said, um, he told me that his sister phones him one day and said, hey, there's a song playing on the radio. I think it's about you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And, and so he, at some point, he hears it on the radio. And I said, so what did you think the very first time you heard it? He said, it's a nice tune. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty solid <You> answer. <laughs> yeah. So no, the story, the story of Bungalow Bill with Ricky Cook himself is my favorite, one of my favorite, but among my favorite scenes in my movie. He's beautiful storytelling from him and beautiful surroundings and a lovely guy who, you know, never picked up a gun again. That's incredible. I I, I have to wonder, you know, was what made that kind of sea change in him happen at that exact moment? You know, like. Was it a mixture of the the energy around at the ashram, you know, you know, being there and all of a sudden, you know, having, you know, killed this creature and, you know, just what triggers that moment of guilt? It's always something I have to think, you know, that's really interesting. Yeah. And it, it may not have been it may have been guilt. It might not have been guilt. It might have been a moment of enlightenment. It might have yeah. been the positive side of that. Mm -hmm. You know, the Maharishi, when he, as he tells the story, as Ricky Cook tells the story in the film, he says the Maharishi said, life destruction is life destruction. Now, he was a longtime meditator already. He learned meditation as a student at UCLA, mm -hmm. and he was, a he was a serious meditator. So when the Maharishi, who clearly he respects enormously, says life destruction is life destruction. I think that touched him very deeply, and he realized that that's true, and he yeah. didn't want to he didn't want to take any other life. Mm -hmm. So I think it was an epiphany moment for him. Wow, that's really cool yeah. that that this this that that moment for somebody you know got captured into a song but was such a, a life-altering moment for him yeah. and, in, you know, in it's a positive kind of, way. It's funny. I was think you sort of mentioned in, you know, the bio of the song that this made such an impression on John that he wrote a song about it. And I was kind of wondering why, like if it made such an impression, why is it just a retelling of a story without sort of that biting commentary that John sometimes has? But now I find myself glad that he didn't do it. Mm. Like he didn't like come for yeah. <laughs> Rick. You know, he just was like, this is a thing that happened and sort of kept it cartoonish and sort of campy in that way that wasn't necessarily like mean or um because he certainly could be you know he has a well-known you know mean streak in him yes so to show that kind of um restraint restraint and and leniency is right maybe that's a maybe that's you know due to the time he's spending at the ashram at the time possibly you know what else do you think about it julia how do you feel about it I um I think it's really funny that uh you have the song back to back with Rocky Raccoon because in my head they sort of feel like in the same universe to me. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. Just like sort of the type of song, like a very storytelling, um, like vivid story about like a specific person as opposed to sort of the general idea of love or you know things that they tend to sing about right um so i i think it's really funny that these are back to back and together um 
I a little part of me kind of feels like John heard Rocky Raccoon and was like, well, that's fine, Paul. Like, I can do a story song, too. I'm going to do it. I'm just going to do it a little bit I different. I could do a silly story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's a little bit of that. But it is like you can tell one. You can tell Rocky Raccoon is Paul and you can tell that Bungalow Bill is John. Like, even though they're the same type of song, they definitely have the stamp of the songwriter on them, mm-hmm. which I think is very cool. Yeah. 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 When you, when you were spending time with them, you know, and some of the pictures that you've taken are some of the most, you know, well-regarded and, and beautiful photos of the band, uh, you know, as they're sitting there playing, you know, playing their Martin guitars, when you finally hear the white album in November, are you hearing anything that you recognize that you, like you, you, you can tell that that was, they were working on that while they were there? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the the two main ones uh, were Obwadi Obwadak because I was sitting with them while they were working on it, and there's some photos of that mm-hmm. uh, time where they're where they're doing that. And the other was um, the Inner Light because George played that on his tape recorder in a gathering with just the Maharishi and the and the bunch of us, the thirteen of us, the twelve famous folks I call them in my book, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and in the film and me. Um, this kid from uh, Toronto and um, the Maharishi comes into this meditation room, white futons on the floor, no furniture. And we're all sitting there, the 13 of us. And Maharishi had a good sense of humor. And he looks at the tape recorder on the floor, one of these sixties black tape recorders with the push buttons on the end. And he says to George teasing, he says, is that a new song, George, or would you like me to recite the Bhagavad Gita? Which, <laughs> Which, you know, like the Bible, you could recite it, but it'll take a week, right? <laughs> and, and George says, no, it's a new song. And he pushes the button. Now, I'm sitting next to George. My knee is about four inches from him because we're all clumped together in front of the Maharishi. And George is sitting right next to me, and the inner light starts to come out of the tape recorder. I don't know the song, never heard it. And George starts singing live with it right beside me. So I'm listening to this new song. Wow. I'm listening to George singing it like, you know, a foot from my head. Um, and it was just gorgeous. So yeah, when I, when I heard that, um, so certainly those were the two songs that immediately jumped out at me. Mm-hmm. That's so yeah. cool. That is mind blowing that you were just like there. <laughs> I was and there for that. Like writing songs. I, I did want to ask, I, I read uh, a story on your website, uh, and I'd love for you to give kind of the abridged version uh, on the show where you sat with George while he practiced his sitar for a little bit. Cause what a, what a moment that's gotta be to sit there yeah, next to George was, like that. Yeah, it was very beautiful. And it was, it was otherworldly in the sense that sitar music takes you into a different space. Uh, and, and like I said, in my film, I don't know if he spoke for 10 minutes. I mean, I don't know if he played for 10 minutes or 40 minutes because I closed my eyes and time shifted and I opened my eyes and I was stoned again. I was in a state of bliss from the music, from the two of us sitting alone. You know, again, we were in a small meditation room. I was sitting I don't know, a foot away. Mm-hmm. Um, that was very beautiful. And then when I when he finished and I opened my eyes and I was stoned, and I think he was too. Again, the bliss just from the music. Uh, and we started talking and we had this amazing conversation. Yeah. And he said he said two things that I remember. Um, he said 
He said, I get higher meditating than I ever did on drugs. And I knew what he meant because I'd already experienced it a few days before. And then he said, and he said this with complete humility, George was this amazing, I mean, he was 24 and I was 24. You know, I'm this ordinary kid, he's a superstar. Now I didn't feel any separation because remember I, right from the first time I sat down with them, it's like, yeah, they're ordinary people. Everyone farts and is afraid in the night. So <laughs> I never, I never, I, I, I was with them a week. I never thought of them as the Beatles, literally never thought. I took out my camera twice. I didn't think of taking it out more. They'd already said, take all the pictures you like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I never asked for an autograph, didn't think about it. Never asked to, I mean, we, I could have had photos with them fooling around because we were like, a little tribe for a week, at least the week I was there. And it wasn't that I thought I would like them. Oh, no, I better not ask. I literally never thought of it. So, you know, George is a man of unbelievable humility, grounded, calm, warm, receptive, kind. And then he said this, which was life-changing to me as we're sitting there. He said, like, we're the Beatles after all, aren't we? We have all the money you could ever dream of. We have all the fame you could ever wish for, but it isn't love, it isn't health, it isn't peace inside, is it? And that changed my life. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. He's such a deep guy, and I feel like yeah. you know, the the, I feel like that gets lost sometimes. Like just how, you know, what an old soul he was, even at a at a young age. That's really. Oh, amazing. That's brilliant. Um, oh, yeah. Amazing. I want One more question, and then I want to knock out some rapid fires, and then we'll let you go because I know you've got places to be. Um, and this is kind of a, a, a high-level question. How do you think that the time with the Maharishi changed the Beatles, and how did it change you? I don't know how it changed them because, you know, it's like inside their heads. I don't really know. Um, I never talked to them after the ashram, uh, except years and years and years and years later. Uh, Paul asked me if he could use some of my pictures before the Radio City Music Hall concert. Um, we talked briefly. Um, Ringo asked if I, he could use some of my pictures when he was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. We talked very briefly in the middle of a crazy, you know, elbow-to-elbow, shoulder-to-shoulder crowd. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how it changed them. I mean, you know, meditation changed me. Um, it wasn't the Maharishi, though. Thank I thank him for the work he did, or I would never have been there. But meditation changed my life because it opened up a door in my psyche to that part of one's heart and soul where there truly is inner peace, where there truly is universal love and universal clarity. And anyone can go there. You know, meditation, there's many forms, and TM is a is an effective and simple form. So, um, yeah, that time at the ashram was life-changing. And, you know, John, uh, George telling me that about, you know, it isn't love, it isn't health, it isn't peace inside, that changed my life. I didn't forget that perspective to this day. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. so, you know, I've made films and I've won awards and I've made some money, and it's never gone to my head. And probably one of the reasons is George Harrison saying that to me as a 24-year-old and him being a 24-year-old. You know, and John said something to me that was life-changing as well. We were sitting alone together, me and him, 
And he said, so what are you doing here? Because no one was being allowed in. No one was being allowed in at all. And the world's press was arriving, 20, 30 people a day outside the gates. And they came to do interviews with the Beatles. Sorry, ashrams closed. Maharishi would come out once a day and give a press conference so they could get their quotes or their footage and then they would go away mm-hmm. next day and next day another 20 or 30 people would come from all over the world press from all over the world television radio papers uh, magazines um and um but one of the things john said to me when we were alone was he said so what are you doing here and i just said briefly you know heartbreak meditation the miracle of meditation and he looked off in the distance and he paused and he said he turned back and he said Ah, yes, love can be very hard on us sometimes, can't it, Paul? And I said, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he looked off in the distance again, and he looked back, and he looked at me, and he said, but you know the really great thing about love, Paul, is you always get another chance. And in that moment, he couldn't have said something more kind and more caring and more reassuring. Yeah. Because even though the agony of the heartbreak was gone, the heartbreak itself wasn't gone. That took longer. But he was basically saying, hey, don't lose perspective. You always get another chance. So that was life-changing for me as well. I didn't realize when he said that, that he had already hooked up with Yoko. And so he was talking about both of us. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Man, that is, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, what, One is, of the joys, what a simple sorry thing to, to say. You. No, you're fine. What a, just like a simple thing to say. But again, like right place, right time right thing to hear you know just everything falling into place to like help you heal your soul it's amazing yeah oh a gift a gift a gift a gift yeah you know i mean they were kind and generous with me they were you know playful down to earth they were you know you know like my soul said hey paul they're just ordinary people like you you know and of course people forget that and they idolize rock stars and it must be hard for the rock stars must be hard for the movie stars if everyone is idolizing you and yet you know your own faults or you know your own whatever it's a Mm -hmm. it's a tricky it's a tricky relationship to adore another person for sure it's it's kind of an objectification which is challenging yeah and god lord knows that's a hard way for anyone to live you know yes yeah. absolutely well before we yeah. let you go can we do a couple of rapid fire questions real quick you bet wonderful you bet. all right rapid fire number one uh what is your favorite beatles album well i mean honest to god they're all favorites for real <laughs> the one that the one that impacted me the most was revolver and what impacted me the most was the last song uh, tomorrow never knows because that was the first moment that I wondered if there was an inner journey because of them writing about it. And I remember listening to the song, you know, turn off your mind, float downstream, and you are not dying, you are not dying, go towards the light is, you know, and and I remember the song ended and I thought, what are they talking about? <laughs> but it was the but it was the first time that I got hooked into, well, is there an inner journey? Is that what they're talking about? Is there an inner journey? So that record, that album, Revolver, played a big part in my life, and that song particularly. For sure. My, my follow-up question is, what's your favorite Beatles song? And that, would, would it be that one, or would it be another one? Well, honest to God, my kind of personality, they're all favorites. Yeah. They are. 
you know, how do you how do you decide? You <laughs> what, what's your favorite um, one at the moment? <laughs> if you had to pick one now, um, if if I had to pick one now, I'd say, um, oh God, the name has gone out of my head. The one about the holes in Blank and Lancashire and the oh, Albert uh, Hall. a day in the life. Yeah, fantastic. If I, right now, day in the life, brilliant, brilliant, beyond brilliant. Yeah, for sure. You know, do you have a yeah. least favorite Beatles song? No, no, I've never, I don't have any Beatles song that I don't like. Yeah. I, you know, I find joy in all of them. Fantastic. And then this is our, our last question. I, I feel like I maybe know the answer, uh, but your favorite moment or memory associated with the Beatles or Beatles music? I would. St- well, f- favorite, <laughs> favorite, me- yeah, favorite memory is sitting is sitting with them at the ashram. I feel like we've talked yeah. about it for 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. that that is absolutely fantastic. Paul, I can't thank you enough for taking some time to 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 meet with us. Where can our listeners check out the movie and your book and any other films that you're working on or that you've put out that you want to share? So there's there's uh, two ways. They can go to paulsaltzman.com. Or for the Beatles directly, they can go to one of my other sites. That's thebeatlesinindia.com. Fantastic. And the movie is there. It's uh, it's streaming on demand, I believe, or like pay per view. Essentially, however that works. Yeah, now. essentially. Wonderful. Yeah, I think it's I think it's nine dollars and ninety nine cents. It's a bargain. That's a bargain. <laughs> fantastic. Well, Paul, thank you so much for the time. I, this the, the, your stories are fantastic. Uh, what a great. Uh, a great experience. I've got other questions. I wish I could get to you. I might shoot you an email. Uh, they're non Beatles related, but just some things I was curious about that. I'd love to pick your brain not on. A, not a problem. Send me an email. We can chit chat again. Fantastic. Well, Paul, thank you so much for your time. Have a great evening, my friend. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Thank you, Paul. Thank you both. Thank, thank you. you both very much. Happy to do it. Adios. Adios. Paul Saltzman, everybody. Oh, my gosh. Man. I am, like, that was, I'm speechless. Yeah. I, I was, like, mesmerized with the stories. I'm like, is this real? Yeah. <laughs> I, You know, and it's funny because, like, for me, I feel like if I were in his shoes at any point in my life, um, I feel like I would have had to have pinched myself and just been like, am I really doing this? Am I really eating breakfast? With, with the Beatles, right? Um, I mean, just what a what an experience. Good grief, and the photos that he's taken, that that he took during that time are are just simply gorgeous. I mean, the the scenery is beautiful. They're always in like these caftan, you know, white linen robes. You know, a couple of beads here and there. You know, hair growing out, not really shaving. Everything's just chill. And they just look, you know, so cool and so happy and peaceful to be exploring, right. you know, new things. And like, what an amazing treat to just be able to experience them being humans. Yeah, and not like they they were in like a safe space that the ashram was closed to everyone else. They didn't have to be. The Beatles. Exactly. They could just like relax and meditate and create mm-hmm. and be joyful and enjoy the beauty around them and in each other. And to be able to like be a spectator for that and to be welcomed by them 
like, wow. Yeah, right? Wow. <laughs> you know, I, I've i always been curious about meditation, and you and I have talked about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I know your yoga studio does offer different meditation-based courses from time to time, and I've never gone to one because I'm an idiot. Um, <laughs> but I remember the first time I ever felt what I thought was maybe close to what that would feel like. Uh-huh. Um, and we had gone to a, um, what's the class called? Restorative. We'd gone to a restorative yoga class um, that I remember, and I was laying directly under a fan, mm. which is like my favorite place to be. It is. Just cool breeze blowing on me. Ugh. A little bit of my tum-tum was maybe hanging out on my shirt. <laughs> it's perfection. Um, and it was like the second or third time we'd gone to the class. And after You're feeling a little more comfortable, after a few minutes, my brain just kind of wandered and then just stopped for a bit. But then it came back in like weird ways and thinking about weird things. And then that like pulled me back out of it. And I was like, super like, what am I? Why am I thinking about SpaghettiOs? Like, you know, like whatever it was. Um, <laughs> but like it, it's so it seems like something that's so daunting and challenging. And I've I'm still interested in in doing it and getting into meditation listeners do any of you meditate do you do any sort of meditation do you do transcendental meditation um i'd be curious to know your experiences with it let me know in the comments so man what a wow what a what a great story so fun fantastic i want to watch the movie yes it's i've been wanting to check it out for a while um his uh, his website has great little stories some of the ones that he told tonight are on there kind of like in blog form. Um, a bunch others that are really, really cool. Um, his photos are on there. They're fantastic. He's got some gorgeous photo albums for sale. Um, yeah, so check it out. Paul Saltzman and uh, thebeatlesinindia.com. How about that? So, friends, what do you think? Um, too high, too low? We didn't even, we never even got, we never even rounded back to, do we feel like we're at a good spot? Uh, okay. For Bungalow Bill. But I don't. I think we're okay. I yeah, feel, this is a very chill episode. It's a chill episode. Yeah, I don't feel the need to have yeah. very much structure. Yeah. <laughs> Are you cool with it where it is? No big deal. Whatever, man. <laughs> um, I am definitely intrigued by the story arc of Rick Cook. Yeah. So now I want to go like yes. dig into his story a bit more because that's really interesting. Dare I even attempt to reach out to Rick Cook Ooh. on this show? I don't know. He probably wouldn't do it. He, I mean, everyone knows that it's him, so I'm sure he's just like, nah. Hard pass. I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> Luca, is this dog killing Maybe if it was okay. ranking any other band, <laughs> I'd be there. But, so, anyhow, what do you guys think? Let us know in the comments. Uh, if you've enjoyed the show, tell a friend. Let them know what we're doing over here at Ranking the Beatles. Uh, like us on the Facebooks and instagram give us a follow on twitter at ranking beetles that's not what i was expecting but i'll take it i was gonna say give us a five star review yes on all of your favorite podcast platforms we've gotten a couple in the last 30 days we got the nicest review the other day did we what did it say it said ranking the songs of the beetles what could possibly go wrong? So much. So much. Uh, but somehow this podcast gets it right. Gets it. But somehow this podcast gets it just right. Thanks to the wit and charm of the co-hosts. 
and their guests. Oh. The listener quickly discovers the rankings are used not to incite heated arguments, but rather as a starting point to spark a positive, deep dive into every Beatles song. Put simply, thanking the Beatles is a welcome addition to the Beatle Podcast universe. Well, thank a you. A welcome addition? That is fantastic. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that because that is spot on. Uh, the rankings are not meant to start arguments. Um, that usually happens when I'm drinking with friends, uh, <laughs> like our other, like, like previous guest, Kamalansa. <laughs> um, but we're always on the same page, usually. But no, this is purely meant as a love letter to the Beatles and their music, and to share the experiences that uh, we have all had with that music. So I'm glad you are right on the money. Um, so if you're enjoying it, please leave us a five-star review. Four is okay. We prefer the five, though. Also, <laughs> I want to say hello. We have listeners in Hong Kong right now. Wow. I don't know where that came from. Guys, we are worldwide. Worldwide, wide, wide, wide. <laughs> we are worldwide. Uh, there have been countries and cities showing up. Uh, that I, I don't know how we've reached you, but we are excited to be in your ears, and we hope you are enjoying our, uh, our little show. Yeah. So. All right, let's wrap it up. Let these people go. Let's wrap it up. We will see you all back here next week with another exciting episode of Ranking the Beatles. <laughs> uh, so until then, I'm Jonathan. And I'm Julia. Adios. Bye, y'all.